brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target, and look who is back in front of me. They can't look because we're not on camera. <laughs> they can only hear me. Well, listen to who is across <laughs> from the table. It's been, as you were saying, I think four months from hearing Yes, pretty much like the main voice on this podcast, I feel <laughs> oh, like. Excuse me. Yeah, um, I, I was supposed to do this uh, TV show that's supposed to take like six weeks to film it, and it ended up taking like four months. So I was away much longer than I had anticipated. And believe me, I wanted to be back here with you guys, but I was all over the place. This fall has been totally insane, just nuts off the wall. I knew it was going to be off the wall the second I signed up to do that television show because we're doing a TV show. that It actually premiered uh, Tuesday. It's called uh, Tesla's Death Ray, A Murder Declassified on the Discovery Channel. And I saw the first episode on... on uh, um, when it aired, and I mean, it looks really good. I was happy and I'm, with I'm it. guessing most of this audience did too. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I hope so. I mean, it's worth going and checking out. It's on the Discovery Channel, or uh, you can use the Discovery Channel Go app to view it also if you want. Um, and then uh, I got married in mid October. Huge, of course. And you were there, Ian. Yeah, I, I should say it was like for for a wedding that you planned. You, you know, you got engaged during the summer. Yeah, and then you had the wedding in early fall. Yeah, mid-October. Mid-October. So I thought it was a really well-done wedding for something that you planned pretty that, quickly. That, w- that was mostly Benny's doing. I was uh, expecting <laughs> it to be like a really small, low-key wedding, and it was not. Um, yeah, we wanted it to be a small, low-key wedding. Um, and we, I mean, we didn't invite like everybody we knew. Um, Try to kind of keep it like a close-knit group of people. Um, but, you know... Uh, Benny's family from Italy wanted to come in, of course. So she has a good-sized family. Um, my family was there. Not a whole lot of people on my side of the family, but, you know, we're a small family, I guess you could say. You know, a couple aunts, a couple uncles, my sister, um, mom, stepdad, you know. So, and, but then for, with friends, I mean, it ended up being, what, 150 people maybe? I'm not good something, with numbers. I just like even that? mean the location, everything. It was yeah, really nice. at the water club. Yeah, it was. It, it was super nice. Um, Jim West gave an epic speech that was, what, about like 30 minutes? Smokey. Best man Smokey was my best man. Um, what, did, what did Benny do with that rock that he brought? Because <laughs> he, he said something about this being a stepping stone, and then he brought a literal stone, pa- like a large... To pause and reflect, yeah. <laughs> I know, We I have that. It's in my apartment. Because I was like, what does he expect, Benny, to carry this around during her wedding? Well, you know, if we had a garden, we could put it in there. But we don't because we live in New York City. <laughs> so, Brooklyn, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Smokey gave an awesome speech. 
I was super happy to have him there. Um, a couple friends of mine um, came in, um, guys I knew from the Army, um, good buddies of mine. Um, it was just pretty wild. Absolutely. Well, I'm psyched to have The Ed- Odyssean was there. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> I'm, I'm psyched to have Ed Derrick coming on. Am I, and am I saying his name right? Uh, I think Ed Ed Durock, but we can I, we I can will ask, ask him. him for sure. I did actually speak to him yesterday, but great photographer and author. Uh, one thing I was going to ask you about is like on the intro we see we say special ops news and and straight talk with the guys in the community. I feel I do a pretty good interview, but when it comes to the news in the special ops community, I will admit when you're not here, the show is lacking a bit because there's no one else on the ground going to the DMZ in Korea, going to the Philippines and meeting with generals. Like I, I'm not able to bring that to the show. So I I wanted to ask you like, what is the biggest story that has been, you know, has gone uncovered by the mainstream media? It might be on the site, but we probably haven't covered it on the show because I I leave a lot of that to you and you haven't been here. I mean, there, there are a bunch of different stories um, within the special operations community that have gone down over the last few months. Um, One of the big ones was the siege of Marawi ended in the Philippines, um, which the um, American special forces and special operations guys played a a, um, ancillary role in supporting the Filipino troops. Um, so that happened, and um, I interviewed the Philippine SOCOM commander, General Pomonag, um, uh, via email. I met him in person when I was in the Philippines. Um, but I, I inter- you put a picture up with him, right? Yeah, I interviewed him again um, about Marawi because what happened was General Pomonag was put in as the um, first as an advisor to the campaign in Marawi. Then he became um, the um, officer in charge of the um, battle, the battle space right there. And then from there, he became they put him in charge of the entire Marawi operation. So he is the one who actually brought the siege to an end, him and his men, of course. Um, so I interviewed him and I wrote an article. I think it's called What Really Happened in Marawi. That's on SoftRep. And it's a really good um, postmortem of how things went down. Um, and some really interesting comparisons to Mosul, Aleppo, ISIS, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that happened. The um, ambush in Niger happened. Of Which, the, yeah, we spoke about a little bit. The special forces ODA that got ambushed over there. I think that happened while you were still on the show. So uh, we covered- uh, no, I was uh, because I was working on that story on the set of the television show on my Makes cell phone okay. in between shoots, working on that story, talking to sources. Well, we have talked about it, but I wonder what you and we um, we did uh, some. I mean, I, I toot our own horn a little bit. I, I think we did really good coverage of what happened there and cut through the bullshit um, there. The media just said some absolutely atrocious things speculating um, about David Johnson, one of the um, American soldiers, that he was captured alive, um, that he was tortured, that he was mutilated, that you know war crimes were committed, just like insane speculation. There's even a CNN guy like talking about like what was really in the coffin they buried, just absolutely disgusting comments that people were making based off of speculation. Um, and I think we kind of kept things down to earth. Um, the the really unfortunate thing was from what I remember, that story for weeks went relatively uncovered until someone asked the president about it. And then the story became, has Obama spoken to the parents? And Has then when Trump he, spoken to the parents? I, yeah, I don't know why I'm saying Obama. Wow, I'm forgetting who the president is. I mean, there's a huge difference. Uh, stop, Trump, stop pushing your liberal agenda, Ian. <laughs> has Trump spoken to the parents? And then when he did, 
you know, did he make appropriate comments? And I feel like the actual ambush was completely underreported. Yeah. The big story became Trump's phone call. Yeah, it becomes like a professional wrestling story, you know, like who talked to more families, Obama or Trump? Like, dude, is that really what you took away from this? Like, we got men in Africa um, who are trying to stop al-Qaeda and other Islamist groups from spreading through Central Africa, and then they would spread elsewhere. Um, it's a really critical facet of the war on terror. Like, Donald Trump's phone call, I mean... I don't care. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, it's nice to call the families, of course, and the families should be taken care of. Don't get me wrong. And I feel for uh, the families of um, the, the four soldiers who were killed over there. But I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Is that really worth days and days of endless coverage? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then the other story was the um, what is it called? The SFAB, the S- Security Forces Assistance Brigades. So these are the conventional units that are being stood up to conduct foreign internal defense around the world to go and train um, foreign militaries, which has always been a special forces task. So that's been a big thing that it blew up in the press. And there are a lot of bad moves were made as they stood up these units. Like they're giving them Green Berets. The acronym was SF. They had uh, insignia that looked like special forces insignia. They, yeah, we did mention this. Their, their, their nickname was the Legion, which was yep. the fifth group. Um, you know, we were always the fifth Legion. The last time Derek was on, he actually spoke about this. Right, so, yeah. so that was one big controversy that popped off. Then, of course, we did mention uh, a bunch of times the death of the Green Beret, and that's been an ongoing story at the hands of allegedly two Navy SEALs. Yeah, yeah, Melgar. Um yeah, that story is still ongoing, and we don't have the truth behind it yet. Um, I, I honestly, I don't think we're ever going to get the whole story um, as far as what happened there. Um, but the the official story, the story that the seals told, doesn't make sense. But then there was also the story that this guy's, I believe, fiance told or wife. The one that was covered by the Daily Beast about these seals being involved in something, getting money illegally. He yeah, was being, he was asked to be a part of it. He didn't want a part of it, and then when he was going to expose this, that was he, what I was told early on that it, it had to do with illicit funds. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Hopefully, the truth comes out. I, I'm not holding my breath, though. I think you know, naval special warfare, and especially that unit in particular, is very good at covering things up, and they've done it very well for you know over a decade now. So I, I think they're going to bury this. Yeah, well, I don't. I haven't seen much on it in a few months, so or about a month. I mean, being in SEAL Team Six is like you can literally get away with murder. What can those guys do wrong? Nothing. I mean, you can literally do what they, what they, whatever they want, and no one's stopping them. It's going to be a controversial statement from you, I'm sure, to some in the community. Oh, I mean, you can say it's controversial, but I mean, is there any evidence to the contrary? Yeah. I mean, what happened? I mean, all these stories keep coming out, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And what happens? Nothing. You know, maybe CBS starts up a new television show about SEAL Team 6. I mean, maybe that's the only thing that happens. It's, yeah. it's surreal. Uh, any other stuff that, that you've been working on? Because you've been away, so it's like you haven't had time to to um, write as much. Or, or Yeah, I've been working behind the scenes and writing a little bit um, when I could. Um, I want to. So for this television show, I was in Serbia. Um, and nice. uh, yeah, we were in Belgrade for, you know, a week. And I made some pretty good contacts and I'd like to write kind of a retrospective on Serbia because, you know, we were involved there during the Kosovo campaign and all that back in 1999. And it's one of those places that 
we get involved in and then we quickly forget about, you know, sort of like Afghanistan. You know, we were there in the 80s and then we forgot all about it. And then by 2001, we, had, we were back. Uh, you know, we wanted to withdraw from Iraq in 2009, forget all about it. And then we were back like, what, three years later? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, um, it, I'm not saying we're going to go to war in Serbia. I'm just saying that we should not just completely forget about what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, so I'd like to write a little bit of a retrospective on that. And uh, I'm working on another story about um, USASOC um, and some stuff going on there. I, I'm I'm going to start writing that story today or tomorrow, but I uh, probably don't want to get into the details quite yet. All good. I mean, the big news story today in, in all of the media is Bannon uh, criticizing Trump. Did oh, you, my gosh. Did you see the um, the headline of the Daily News? I was reading the New Yorker article about... What do you think of this as a cover? Oh, my God. That is awesome. But cuck fight. The weird thing for me, we've talked about this on the podcast. What is with the popularization of this, what was like a pornographic term, cuck? And and I sent that to our friend Mike Bins, you know, producer, Will Cow Majority, and he was like, it doesn't even make sense because... Bannon doesn't have a wife that Trump could fuck. So well, yeah, but I, that's I, don't I know think, it's changed its definition. Yeah, that's not somehow. that's not how the alt right people use that term. I mean, you'd have to ask them what how they define it, of course. But I, I think the term for them is that you know you're like front running for somebody yeah. else, right? You know who I think I honestly think popularized the term, and I know you're not a fan of him, but I will give him credit for popularizing cuck. I think it's Milo Yiannopoulos. He was yeah. using it, you know, like. He, he was saying what was really an obscene term in the media for politics before it became this popular thing. So Milo was somebody who I kind of, I guess you could say I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I saw him as kind of like a provo- you know, provocateur or yeah, something like is. that. Um, but, I mean, since all the other stuff that's come out about him, I mean, I don't say this lightly, I think Milo actually is a Nazi. Even though he's gay. Who cares? And and I think married to a black guy, right? And well, that's the camouflage, right? It's it's like you know, in the gay community, they'd say you know, a gay guy who's in the closet, he has a wife. That's his beard. Yeah, it's a camouflage, right? So it's mean, a bit of an extreme to go through, I, though. I, I mean, I'm not saying that it's insincere that he's not really homosexual. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that he uses these things as camouflage. Um, so that you say, oh, he can't be a racist. He can't be a homophobe. He can't be a Nazi. Of course he can. There were thousands of Jews in the Nazi military, in the Wehrmacht. There's, there, you can be an anti-Semitic Jew. You can be a self-loathing black man. You can be, you know, I can, I'm Irish-American. I can hate Irish people. I mean, it's, these things are possible. <laughs> so it serves as camouflage for, uh, for him. I do think he used the term first, though. And, and I was saying, like, if he does media, I would love to have Steve Bannon on the podcast. Uh, I, I did know Steve Bannon or, you know, Stephen K. Bannon, because that's always how he refers to himself. But prior to the whole administration thing, I knew him as just a guy who occasionally filled in for Andrew Wilkow and took over for Andrew Breitbart, who I did know. And uh, never did I think he would become this name that everybody knows. Yeah, this lightning I was rod. just like, where did this guy come out of? So, I mean, he still works at Sirius. My friend Caroline McGarrett's, uh runs like the radio division at the White House, and she was Bannon's producer. So, like, we do have some connection there. And I, I think he'd be an interesting guy to get on. And he's, and he's former Navy. I'm not opposed to getting people on that are extreme right, extreme yeah. left. If, as long as they have something interesting to say. Well, and Bannon's a very... I think Bannon had a lot of influence on this current president. 
Um, early on, or at least during the campaign, I think he did, and I think he gradually lost his influence. Um, I think he had a lot of influence in getting him elected too, because he he saw like an opportunity for Breitbart to be this very pro-Trump outlet, right. and, and whether you look at them as like a legitimate legitimate news organization or not. Their stuff is spread like wildfire throughout social media. I will, people read I will again break my journalistic objectivity to say that I find Bannon fairly loathsome. Um, but I think it's interesting in the sense that Trump is not an ideological person, but Bannon no. is. Yes. Bannon, Bannon is ideological. And uh, I wonder how much that led to the split between the two of them. You know, I was, I was reading that there's a, a bunch of, um, you know, long articles that are out about this subject now. And I was just reading that one. I think it's in The New Yorker about Bannon and Trump and the, the early days of um, of the Trump presidency. And there's a big schism between the two of them. And I, I have to believe that that's part of it, that Bannon feels like he's on this crusade. You know, he's fighting this holy war. And Trump is just free associating from day to day. I think there's also a element of Bannon saying that Trump Jr. meeting with a Russian lawyer in, at the White House was treasonous. I, you know, I, as just a media guy, I do think like you you make that snippet that could be a headline and yeah. it sells books. You know, yes. it's, it's being covered everywhere. So he probably was purposely using very provocative language. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think he's probably also trying to insulate himself from the FBI investigation. He doesn't want to get tied up in that. And um, um, what else was I going to say about that? Um, you're right that he's probably selling books. But, oh, I, I mean, it also just goes back to the fact that he's been scorned by Trump. He got fired by the administration. And, and you know, so he, he clearly has an axe to grind, too. Yeah. And he's on the offensive. <laughs> What was your take on the uh, the nuclear button tweet? It's completely juvenile, <laughs> childish bullshit. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I think I was telling you earlier, I think Donald Trump is proof that you can be the president of the United States and the most powerful person in the world and still be a very small man Yeah, um, and just be a very petty person. I did see Alex uh, Hollings, our writer, did write a really cool article about that there is no, you know, tangible nuclear button and the process that you would have to right. go through to set off a nuclear weapon. And I, I do think that's interesting because people wonder, like, what what would the process be if we were to and step it, into a nuclear war? And it all goes down very quickly. Yeah. It has to because once the nukes are in the air, you have, like, something like, what is it? I can't remember the time. There's different times for different things, but I think it's like six minutes or something like that. You have to make a decision. And and I'm sure it's not just solely the president's decision. You know, I would think if General Mattis or any of these people had a take no, on it. No, it resides with the president. That's kind of, that's pretty scary. Yeah, the president <laughs> is the nuclear authority. And if the president is killed, obviously there's a descending order from the vice president. And eventually the secretary of defense would be somewhere in that chain of command, you know, if our government got wiped out in some sort of attack. Yeah. And then the other big thing to get to before we get to Ed, you are officially working on a memoir. Yeah, yeah. I, Can uh, I say the title? Yeah, it's titled uh, Murphy's Law. Which and is like... I, I do feel like it's the obvious title to go with, right? <laughs> In a good way. It wasn't my idea. I'm trying to remember who came up with it. It might have been um it might have been Vasilis. I think he's trying to claim credit for that. Um it might have been my publisher. I can't remember who came up with the idea. 
But um, that, yeah, that's the title of the book. I've got about 20,000 words written. I wrote about joining the army, um, going to Afghanistan, and I'm writing about going to Iraq right now. I'm actually in the portion when I was in Iraq in 2005, and I had to stop writing yesterday and just like take some notes, like some bullet points, because that whole when I think back to that summer, it was just like total insanity. And it's, I just have this like total um, frenzied, scattered memories of everything because things were happening so quickly. We probably did like 150 missions that summer in three months. Um, it was just totally insane. So I'm trying to like take a step back and I have to like recollect all of these experiences and try to put them together. Um, because I it just like flashes of different firefights and explosions and weird stuff that happened in between. It's just wild. What's interesting to me about you putting out a memoir is You've been writing for nearly like a decade now, I think, right? Uh, eight years. Okay, so yeah, nearly a decade. And you are a guy who writes very little about your combat experience. Yeah, I, I, I actually write about this in the beginning of, of the memoir, um, in the prologue or, or maybe the first chapter. And yeah, I, I've written hundreds and hundreds of articles, but I've written only like about things that I've done personally, maybe three Articles. I wrote one about a joint mission I did in Iraq with um, a worse team in 2009. And then I wrote another 2009 mission when uh, me and my ODA crashed a wedding. Um, so those are really the only two I think I've really written about. And um, I was having a conversation with uh, Jim West about it. And he's like, yeah, that's your PTSD kicking in. He's like, because you're avoiding what you've done and what you what you actually participated in. It's a way of like avoiding all of it. And uh, maybe he's right. Um, sitting down and actually thinking about this stuff, I'll get, there's a lot of stuff that I just kind of put behind me and moved on, you know, and now I'm kind of going back and trying to like, you know, like relive it. And it's, uh, it's weird. And, and it's going to be that way for a while because I assume when you put the book out, you're going to be doing interviews all over and people are going to be asking about sure. these stories that you haven't opened up about until now. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there, um, and just a lot of, you know, it, this book, and I, I warned my publisher and my agent about this when when um, we first started talking about this book. I was like, look, man, this isn't going to be like the typical flag-waving patriotic book. I mean, it's I'm pro-military, and I'm pro-America, and I don't hide that, and I'm not going to hide that in this book. But there's a lot of stuff in there. That it's not a. Uh, it's not like Captain America j- running in to save the day, and you know, band. Another thing, like another cliche, like Band of Brothers. Like my experience in the military is not the Band of Brothers. I mean, it was like we all fucking hated each other, but we kind of pulled together mm-hmm. in the name of doing the mission. You know, um, there's still that like no man gets left behind sense of brotherhood, but. Um, I would not describe us as a band of brothers. We were like a band of assholes that fucking hated each other, but we came together to do this job. That was the common thread, the commonality. We were all soldiers. We all had a mission in front of us. It it felt that way in both the Green Berets and the Army Rangers? Yeah, yeah. We were, were, um, you know, different experiences, different cultures, um, but (laughs) still a lot of animosities between people. Um... And so, I mean, maybe that's kind of the beauty of it, too, in a way that all these different people can come together and work together in in combat. Um, But I'm not going to church that up either and make it seem like we're all like 
holding hands and kumbaya mm-hmm. and all this kind of yeah that, that like band of brothers people impression that people have like so every once in a while I read books and memoirs from other people um, and I'm just like holy shit what military were you in like everyone's <laughs> like friendly top of the morning to you gunny you know like what the fuck you think that could be just to avoid controversy though and I don't I, don't, I think that um, you know it's sort of like high school like a lot of people talk about like those were the best years of my life you know yeah. a lot of people look back on their military service with um, you know rose colored glasses as well that makes sense. you know those were the best years of my <laughs> life everything was so great and this and that and, it, and it, they were great years they were good years and a lot of great things happened but also a lot of bad things a lot of shitty things and it's you know it's life also what will separate your book from many of the books out there is you're the sole writer of the book most yeah. books I you know I've said it on the show before this is no like big secret it's the author's stories but if you see a co-writer on there Oftentimes, it's the co-writer's book. Yeah, no, I'm writing the I'm writing the book myself, um, for better or worse. <laughs> and uh, the I mean, and they could trust you to do that. You've written three amazing fiction books. You're, four, four. That's right. Four. Well, it, the Deckard novels is a trilogy. No, no, no right? there's four, and I'm working. Wow, on, I've been working on five. After I finish the memoir, I'll finish book. So, uh, Gray Matter Spotter was the fourth book. Yeah, in the that series. was the fourth. I thought book. it was the third. Okay. And um, the other thing that's going to make this book a little bit different is it has my, you know, three military deployments. I'm trying to keep it kind of focused on the action, and there's not going to be a lot of stories in there about like when I went to Ranger School. Like, there's that's in a million other books. You know, you don't probably need to hear that from me, um, but. So the my time in you know combat deployments and then my time as a investigative journalist and like my trips to Iraq and Syria as a journalist. Um, so you know the whole experience of like getting smuggled into Syria in 2015, um, going into this war zone. I mean all these like very odd but interesting experiences I've had um, as a journal. And I feel as a journalist, I've actually been able to do more in a lot of ways than I was in the military because I wasn't on anyone's leash. I mean, I could go and do literally whatever I wanted to do. And it was all on me to make the contacts, to make it happen. And, um, and there's no one to tell me, no, I was on my own decision-making process for better or worse. Um, so, I mean, as a journalist, I've been able to do some incredible things that the U.S. Army would never, ever let me do. They'd, yeah. they'd go crazy. I mean, I've been able to get smuggled into Syria. I've been running right into um, combat with the Peshmerga in Iraq. Um, I've went into Damascus, um, got to interview President Assad. I've been into the Philippines um, interviewing their special operations guys, traveling around there. I went to Switzerland. I did a military training exercise in Switzerland. Um, all this, all this. DMZ. Like, yeah, I've been, to, I've been to South Korea. I've been done all kinds of different things that the army would like lose their shit over. Of course. Well, will soft rep radio get a mention in this book? Yeah, no, soft rep radio <laughs> will get a mention. And, nice. I, and I mean, soft rep will be a mentioned and, and that, because it's going to follow that whole progression of when I got out of the military. I was mentioned in the Total Focus book by Brandon Webb, although he erroneously says that I worked with Larry King. I never worked with Larry King. <laughs> I worked with Senator Bill Bradley. I don't know if he was uh, confusing the two, but I, I was like, that's pretty cool that my name was mentioned in here. <laughs> so I'm wondering, I'm like, will you mention doing soft rep radio? Because that would be, I mean, it is a different venture, so... Yeah, I, I th- yeah, it's gonna that's gonna be part of the book is you know getting out of the military, going to college, that whole weird experience will probably be a chapter in there, and 
uh, and then how we started SoftRep, me and Brandon, and um, and taking it from there, and how one thing leads to the next. I mean, I think that'll be an interesting yeah, story. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree, and I know that there's maybe I don't know if I'm allowed to say it. If I'm not, I'll cut it out. A SoftRep book in the works, right, about the story. I believe so. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I guess. Um, and actually, before we get to Ed, what like around when do you see this coming out? Um, I don't have a publication date yet. Do you think 2018 though? I think so. Yeah. Cool. I Very think, cool. I think I think it's going to be a fairly quick turnaround. Well, with that, we'll get over to Ed. Hello, Ed. How are you doing? It's Ian and Jack. Great. How you guys doing? How am I sounding? You sound <clears throat> great. So I, you know, before I introduce you, I, I was wondering. I was I, while I was doing the intro with Jack, I was like, "Am I saying Ed's last name right?" So is it Derek or Derek? Yeah. No one ever gave me the the instructions. Uh, <laughs> my parents said Derek. So I've heard Derek, but I think Derek is the the way that I um, you know, I don't really care, but Derek is uh, is the one that I use personally. So all right, so I think I had it right then. Um, but yeah, joining yep. us for the first time on Software Radio is Ed Derek, uh, the author. One of the books you wrote actually was Victory Point: Operation Red Wings and Whalers, the Marine Corps Battle for Freedom in Afghanistan. Uh, and then I saw you've written a bunch of other books. Uh, unrelated to the military yep. and also your photography work, which is just awesome. But the, the latest book that we'll Thanks. get into is uh, The Final Mission of Extortion 17, Special Ops, Helicopter Support, SEAL Team 6, and The Deadliest Day of the U.S. War in Afghanistan. So I'm looking forward to getting into it, and awesome to have you on. Hey, Ed, thanks for coming on Thank the show. You. It's Jack. Hey, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, and I'm sorry that, um, you know, this has been delayed so long. Um, I, I actually read your book on Extortion 17 up at uh, Lake George months ago. Um, <laughs> I was up there for uh, someone's, a friend's wedding, and I, I love the uh-huh. book, and I thought it was great, and it's going to be very, uh, well, it's published now, it's out, but... Um, it came out in yeah. September, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that book is yep. very helpful for the American public because there's a lot of technical information in there about helicopters and military aviation and how all of that works. Um, so, I mean, I, yeah. I really think people should go and pick up that book. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I, not just for self enrichment, but I, I, you know, I tell people every American should read this book because I tried to really give a great, uh, full spectrum, but also in depth, uh, narration of what uh, modern war is all about through uh, this particular incident from the people yeah. and why they become more fighters. And, you know, you said it's technical. There's a lot of technical stuff in there. I hope that doesn't scare people off. It actually was de-technicalized. I don't know if that's a word, but um, especially some of the stuff about technical intelligence gathering, I think that's important for people to understand. Um, you know, that's sort of, the, uh, you know, not to get too crazy, but, you know, C4ISTIR, C4 star, you know, that, that, um, data, that data flow is the back backbone of modern, particularly joint special operations command operations. Uh, I, I was thinking, you know. I was thinking more about, um, the details you get into, um, with the helicopters and how helicopters yeah. work and the, the maintenance and the investigations of accidents and all yeah. of the different physical and environmental aspects that go into rotary wing aircraft. And, um, I learned a lot from that stuff myself. So I, I think, um, you know, you're right that the average American can pick up this book and it tells them everything they need to know about extortion 17, but it also tells a bigger story about, you know, what our boys are doing over in Afghanistan. Yeah. I, I thanks for saying that. And I, uh, 
that's that was one of the primary intents of the of the book from my standpoint it was uh, whittled way back from the initial manuscript that i turned in and and like you said you know rotary wing aviation you know helicopters and six-wing aircraft fly for the same reason uh ultimately but it's so much more complicated. Yeah. You've got, you know, things with a concept called gyroscopic precession on a spinning, you know, rotary system that, you know, I, I got into that, but they pulled that out and, you know, translational lift and, and proprioceptic indicators and all this other kind of stuff that helicopter pilots need to know about that fixed wing pilots have never even heard of. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a great topic. And it was, I got to, the best part of it was, I got to work with really great people, some really outstanding people uh, from all services, so not just the Army. I remember when I was uh, writing about the bin Laden raid, and this was years ago, and talking to helicopter experts about why that helicopter probably, or how we can speculate why it crashed on that operation, and it was because of what they call the vortex ring state or settling with power, um, which was one of those things I had never heard about. I don't know anything about this stuff. And it basically, it's what happens when the um, the aircraft goes back into its own rotor wash, and now the rotor blades are trying to grip, for lack of a better term, dirty air, and they can't maintain their lift anymore. And I mean, it's just one of those things that, unless you're a helicopter pilot, you've never heard of that. Yeah, well, I'm actually working on a project about that. That's it, that's incorrect. Uh, settling with power and vortex ring state are two completely different things. Uh, I've heard that rumor pushed around. Um, there is another reason, the most likely reason for that uh, incident. It has nothing to do with either of those. I'll go really – actually, it has to do with one of them. I'll go over really quickly. Settling with in, It's actually settling with insufficient power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens is there's a there's – a, they, tra- they teach this actually up at HATS, a high-altitude Army National Guard aviation training site in Colorado here um, in Fort Collins. It's just about four hours from here. But it's um, – they, they, they basically, you know, as you go higher in altitude, turbine engines don't operate as efficiently as right. they do at sea level. There's not enough air, neither do rotor systems. Uh, and then when you load up a helicopter, you can you basically, you have, you can't you carry as many personnel. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've got to have, uh, you have power required and power available. And when the power required exceeds power available, you fall out of the sky and that can happen in a number of ways. You know, if you come in too fast and you pull in the collective to collectively increase the pitch and all the rotor blades, uh, and there's just not the power there, then you can crash. Uh, now, I'll go over real quick with vortex ring state. If you want to hear about this, yeah, yeah. I will not tell you. But So vortex ring state um, is, like you explained, it occurs uh, in when a, a helicopter or – an Osprey, a V-22 Osprey in helicopter mode, there's very little forward airspeed and the, the, the descent rate is really high. And just like you said, it starts, it gets into, it's almost a donut. It's a vortex. It looks like a donut in a diagram and it can't bite the, the rotors. Actually, you, it's transverse laminar flow. You get into a little bit more complicated uh, concepts, but the bulk of the rotor system doesn't have it, it it's it's in it's not so much dirty air it just can't it, the air is descending as fast as the air is being pushed down so this has actually only occurred one time uh in modern times it happened in april 20th 2000 at marana arizona 
with two V-22 Osprey, actually with one V-22 Osprey. Colonel Bianca, um, who helped with this book uh, on Extortion 17, he act- I actually embedded with um, his his Osprey squadron in Afghanistan in 2009, 2010. It was the first one to go to Afghanistan conventionally where there may have been a CV-22 squadron over there before that. But we talked about this at length because he was dash one when this happened. The, 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 uh, the Osprey behind him was the one that went down They're right. They were in helicopter mode and they're descending at a, a ridiculous rate, like two or 3000 feet per minute. And the forward airspeed was less than 10 knots. And so the right nacelle tipped and they applied power and that just made it worse. All they wow. had to do, as it turns out, was rock the nacelles forward and it would have got them out of that. But that's the only time it's ever happened. So, so that, there's so no way that Bin Laden raid was a vortex ring state situation. So you're saying it was a combination of settling with power and having too many personnel on the aircraft for the high altitude? The most likely situation with the Bin Laden raid was that they're in Abbottabad. I, I think the temperature was at that time, I think about 70 degrees. It was at 4,000 feet MSL. Um, and they were, they were loaded up. They were definitely loaded up. Uh, there's a couple other, and the most likely situation, they just came in too fast and they mm-hmm. tried to arrest their descent and they didn't have the power to do it. So they crashed. You, um, I mean, I'm sure it's there, like. There's a couple of. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, also, um, I wonder what played into it if the, uh, because this was a, you know, secret car- uh, helicopter that had special characteristics on it, if that played any aspect mm-hmm. or role in it. Well, that's unlikely because those rotor systems, the rotor system is probably just a, a regular, you know, UH-60 rotor system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard, I've heard a couple other theories bandied about re-ingestion of, uh, of exhaust and also the interruption of airflow because of the wall. And yes, the, those are the two fence. completely ridiculous. Those are two completely ridiculous hypotheses because if that was even remotely possible, think about all the health, the news helicopters that fly around cities all the time. I mean, there'd be helicopters falling out of the sky all the time. Um, if anything, that wall <laughs> being close to the ground like that, would have put it into a it, what's called an in-ground effect hover situation, where it um, it would have helped it, not hurt it. So um, I went over this with some experts on this, and because this was actually part of the book, and they pulled it out. Oh, really? It was a pretty detailed, and yeah, it was a pretty detailed analysis of what happened, of what most. I'm sorry, what most likely happened, and people who a lot of a lot of you know. Even military helicopter pilots are unaware of these limitations that helicopters have because at sea level at Fort Rucker, where Army aviators or Army helicopter aviators are trained, I mean, UH-60s, even when they're loaded up, usually have 20 to 25 or even 30, 35% power markings, meaning that they've got that much more power available. But when you get in these situations where you're just cramming people in, you're high altitude, Yep. And that's considered high altitude, and you come in fast. Like, I mean, it's just basic Newtonian mechanics. I mean, if you try to stop a car going 90 miles an hour in 30 feet, you know, you're going to crash. <laughs> you're going to hit the wall, you know. Now, I remember so one operation that uh, was being planned. It was never executed that, um, you know, my unit was going to participate in. 
uh, was in the Tora Bora Mountains. This would have been 2004. And uh, they were yep. telling us at the time that there would only be two soldiers on each MH60 because of the high altitude. Yeah. 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 Well, that's they, they do what's called their, uh, the, the Air Force calls it spaghetti charts, and the, uh, the, the Army calls it tabular data charts. And for, you know, T-700 TAC 701 Charlie engine, you know, they've, and which is what they are in UH 60s. And I think the MH 60 Mike model has a 115, uh, which is a more powerful engine. But you, you, just like you said, they're going to sit there and do their tabular data charts. And, you know, if they got to come into a hover, <laughs> they got to slow down and hover and then land. I mean, they don't want to ball it up. And yeah, they, exactly. They, they used to make us get all our kit on and each soldier would <laughs> get in a line and we'd stand on the scale and weigh each one of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, if you're going in at eleven, twelve thousand feet above sea level, um, that's it's dangerous. There is a there is a situation that happened on Mount Massive in two thousand nine <laughs> up here in Colorado with an MH sixty Mike model, which is the latest um, UH sixty you know helicopter glass cockpit and upgunned engines and all mm-hmm. that. And all I think three or four, I can't remember how many people were on board, but they all died. They came in to try to, to land on the summit of Mount Massive, which is 14,000 feet and maybe 400, 14.3 or something like that. And there is other, there, it was officially pilot error, but in the specific reports are classified, but there's a few different things going on, um, most likely going on. And, but that was just, they were attempting a maneuver that the helicopter couldn't do. So, and they just crashed. So it's, uh, even with just four people on board, <laughs> one of the problems when you hear some of the helicopter pilots talk about this is that, you know, they'll put bigger engines in like an Apache or, or an UH-60 or an MH-60, but then they're like, oh, we can put more stuff on it. So it's kind of sort of a draw. You, yeah. You carry more stuff. And I'm sure that you'll remember, you know, when the 160th picks people up and I'm not bashing the 160th at all, but a lot of times you'll see the 160th fly with three MH-47s as opposed to a, a conventional um, raid will just have two, and that's because they've got so much more stuff on them. Refueling probe, terrain-following radar, all that kind of stuff, that, you know, more defensive weapons, and that stuff is necessary, but it's too bad that it couldn't be easily pulled off because that refueling probe alone has got to weigh a couple thousand pounds, oh, you know? Oh, shit, really? This is uh, this so, is all like super cool stuff. I could talk about all day with you, but I, I do want to yeah. get into um, your your work, your book, um, because you've yeah. wrote, written about two pretty controversial things. I mean, Operation Red Wings and ex- the Extortion Seventeen crash. Um, I'm not really yeah. quite sure where to start. I mean, I guess um, with Extortion Seventeen, I mean, there's been a lot of controversies. <laughs> um, I, I think. You know, for the people listening to this podcast, and we published an article that you wrote today about the myths surrounding Extortion 17, and maybe that's a good place to start, because I know people have heard these conspiracy theories before. Um, I've I've even had, uh, let's just say, family members um, try to get in touch with me who believe in conspiracies about Extortion 17, and I I was just wondering if you could address some of those. From a... A conceptual fundamental standpoint, I think what what's going on is that, you know, there's a there's a I don't want to say a schism, but because it's by design. But the separation between the the population, the non-military population and people who are warfighters who work for the Department of Defense is huge. There is just 
there's such a lack of understanding, particularly of modern warfare and how these things work. And you, you get questions like, well, why wasn't the 160th supporting these guys? They're special operations and they're elite and they're this and they're that. And the reality is that conventional forces today work with special operations forces all the time and support, you know, some are supporting, some are supported. Uh, it, you know, it, it's particularly in these, these recent wars in OIF and OEF, it uh, wasn't so much that at the beginning of OEF, but it certainly evolved that way. And there are only and so many helicopters to go around. I mean, the 160th yeah, doesn't exactly. have an unlimited number of helicopters and pilots just floating around. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. And so, but back to the point, and I'm sure you've experienced this frustration. It's, you know, my friend Katie, She uh, she's her, her brother flies A-10s, and she's like, yeah, he never talks about it. And I was like, yeah, well, that's not because he's seen horrible, terrible atrocities from 20,000 feet or 500 feet, as it may be, with an A-10. It's because he doesn't want to explain to you what a nine-line brief is. He doesn't want to explain, you know, what hard points are and the difference, what a targeting pot is and buddy lasing and, you know, the difference between pointing and designating with a laser. Uh, it's just there's so much to it. And so with the extortion one seven, it was very easy for the conspiracy pushers to sort of move in and pimp this stuff out. They said, well, it was, you know, seal team six and yes, they should have yeah. been on two helicopters. And, you know, there was these mysterious Afghans on board. Well, all these operations, it, it's sort of like combined. the, uh, like the nine 11 truthers. It's that there's a, an incredible yep. amount of technical information you have to know in order to understand how all of that went down. And if you don't have that technical background, like you said, for the general population, the military is very mysterious and closed off and people yeah. who have nefarious intentions can exploit their ignorance quite easily. Exactly. That's very well stated. And people have, you know, they're pushing books, they're pushing, they want to make movies about it. And it's just silly. It's, um, it's insulting and it's yeah. hurtful actually to a lot of the family members. And particularly when they say, well, what, what were these reservists and national guardsmen doing? Well, the their national job. guard is an incredible <laughs> well of experience. Uh, as you, as you know, and, and, and you know, these people that, who, who are in the national guard, a lot of times they ca they came there from, you know, conventional units and then they go to the national guard and they stay there for 20, 25 years and they become great at what they do, like flying a CH 47. So, so what do yeah. you think are the, um, some of the, the bigger ones that you would want to debunk if you were to choose like the top three, I mean, one of them, you know, we, we hear that, uh, yeah. You know, Obama sent, uh, you know, the guys involved in the bin Laden raid in to, you know, have them assassinated, you know, which I don't even I, I'm sorry to even have to ask this kind of stuff because I sound so stupid. But I, I know there are people listening to this who have these kind of questions. Yeah. yeah and I know I, I hear you when you say that, like, it's embarrassing to bring it up because it's so absurd. But because you were in the military and I never was in the military, but I spent a lot of time around the military and I just know how crazy that is and it's just there's first of all logistically it would be impossible you know for anybody to be able to give forewarning i mean these guys who shot the the helicopter down would just happen to be at the right place at the wrong time and they got a really really lucky shot there's no way and and you know with a ballistic weapon system uh you know and no no you know an unguided ballistic weapon system so there's no way logistically they could have informed them. And even if they did, <laughs> why would they be using an unguided ballistic weapon system? Real quick here, uh, the significant action reports, the SIGAX on WikiLeaks, I think they are there from, was it 06 to 09? 
when I do uh, when I did a search, uh, Sapphire and RPG, Sapphire being small arms fire and RPG, I came up with something like 800 results, meaning there was helicopter pilots who reported a significant action of being shot at by an RPG something like 800 times in that three-year period. And none of them, nothing, nobody got shot down. You can count on one hand the number of helicopters that have yeah. been shot down by RPGs in Afghanistan in the entire war, not just during that three-year period. So it's just a remarkably lucky shot uh, to address why all those guys were on one ship. <clears throat> it was a small LZ. They wanted, you know, Jonas Kelsov, the SEAL, who was a command of the ground element, wanted to mass all the force in one spot at one time. And they didn't want to do a sequential insert that would have taken too much time and given potential ambushers that much time to get ready for the second ship to come in. Um, and let me see some of the other ones, the mysterious Afghans. I think, you know, I addressed that on your, on the article you guys posted today. Thank you very much for putting that up. I really appreciate that. Um, I try to be as comprehensive as possible on that list. Um, I, I think, I think, the mysterious Afghans thing is just absurd. They, you know, all these operations are combined, meaning that they use local forces because that's the whole point after the initial kinetic phase of OEF was to stand up their military so they could deal with this themselves. And so, you know, a lot, even these JSOC raids had, you know, Afghan personnel with them and all the conventional operations did. So, um, and then, I think just the biggest one is when people ask, well, why, why were these National Guardsmen and these reservists flying these elite forces? And all these guys are all trained to the same highest standards. So uh, in the 160th, those guys are great. I think, I think what people should understand is that maybe special operations should be called specialized operations. Um, because a lot of, you know, particularly with these helicopter pilots, I mean, they're doing very specialized things that they train for that are not always needed. I mean, they don't need to do these pinnacle rooftop landings in Afghanistan. I mean, sometimes they do, but that's, you know, like Iraq or something. So they've got all this specialized training that isn't necessarily relevant to what's going on in the Tangy Valley, where these guys who don't have the specialized training can perform the same tasks as, as the 160th, so just as well as they can, and they did. So, so. maybe we can understand how uh, a civilian without the technical background might kind of hear some of this stuff and be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know? But then what do, we ha- what do we think, I mean, I guess what do you think when we see someone like retired General Jerry Boykin getting on board with these sorts of things? It's senility. You know, I, I hate to be flippant, but I, I it might be, you know. And he was just, the commander of Delta Force and of Special Forces in its entirety. How point. old? How old? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know specifically. That name rings a bell because I I just you know I looked into the conspiracy theories, but I didn't look into the personalities behind them. I looked into yeah. the. I wouldn't call the Boykin of them, senile and I don't or anything. even know anything about this guy. I mean, I know there's some older guys who who are like an admiral or something who are, who are claiming this, that these, was this it, possible, uh, but was it's it, just so was absurd. It, it was probably Admiral Lyons. I mean, yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard so many interviews with Boykin. I mean, he seems to be, you know, completely there. I, so I think that'd be a crazy accusation to be honest, but I, I would say throwing in here, just what I know about Boykin, Boykin works for a lot of right wing you know, think yeah. type of type that was places. My next so thing. I think it probably benefits him in a way to 
throw out an Obama conspiracy theory just to push an agenda. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think so. It, that's, but, that's too bad. That's too bad because it's it's just, you know, I don't get political with anybody, but it's just, it really doesn't do the conservative movement any good to be banning around these nonsensical conspiracy theories. The yes. guy's not doing anybody any good. I agree. And like you say, he might be able to, to, to woo favor uh, with some people. And I get it. There's people out there who hate Donald Trump and there's people who hate Barack Obama. And it's just, they, they become um, delirious with, with their, their anger toward these people and toward these political ideologies. And they'll say just about whatever they want. And, and you know, it's uh, te- temporary insanity. Temporary senility, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you lose your mind. Well, I just, I mean, um, a, a I, retired general should know better than to cynically exploit the deaths of American soldiers for some cheap political, you know, oh, gag. I agree with you 100%. But maybe the guy really believes it. I mean, which is even, I don't know anything about way. this guy, but, you know, I've met some dumb generals, haven't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most of <Yeah>. them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, 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 you know, in the Marine Corps, they, 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 you know, it's not written down on doctrine or anything or really discussed that much, but I've had these guys say, look, it's a 70, 30 rule, 70% of the generals that 70% of the O sixes that get, you know, promoted to, to GO general officer status are great. 30% of them are not. And, you know, I've met some dummies, so I, it, you know, it's all types. You and I are on board with uh, logic and careful, detailed analysis and some people just aren't so it's uh, it's unfortunate it's unfortunate to hear that and and it continues Sad. that same that same gimmick continues i remember people in, these were actually special forces veterans asking me they were passing around this conspiracy theory that uh with david johnson one of the the soldier who was killed in niger recently was like some sort of a traitor uh-huh. and he was working with al-qaeda and he sold out the location of the men and got him ambushed and i was like Dude, stop. Just stop. Yeah. Like, think about this. Yeah. Here's what I tell people, too, because, again, never been in the military, but I've been on, you know, the first thing I did in Afghanistan, well, not the first, but, I mean, first combat operation I went on was on a Chinook (coughs) CH-47D with a bunch of Marines, Navy, attached Navy hospital corpsmen and local Afghan fighters and with their goats and chickens. And it was, you know, and I tell you what. I was scared, and every time, I mean, I went to Afghanistan four times and Iraq twice. Every time, I call it the month out, about one month out, you really start paying attention to IED strikes, sniper attacks, and all that kind of stuff in the AO, because you're scared. You don't want to die. You don't want to lose your arms. You want to come home, you know? You don't want to get blown up and, and schwacked and, and screwed up. And you, you, once you're there, you do anything and everything you can to preserve yourself and the people around you. And that's just, that's just human nature. And there's no way in hell any American service personnel is going to, I've never heard this conspiracy theory you're saying, but I know where you're going with it. He's going to sell out his fellow warfighters to Al Qaeda for like what, you know, I, I don't, I don't even, how can anybody even promote that? Well, they can promote it because they've never actually been in a combat theater. It's, and they've never actually experienced that fear. It's also that constellation of fake news <clears throat> websites out there that promote this kind of nonsense. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I agree. But, I, I mean, going back to, you know, facts, uh, what did you take away from the extortion 17 crash and all? I mean, we had a, a tremendous loss of life. 
Um, is there, what, what, do you, what do you think are the lessons learned from that entire event? Well, it's hard to say that there's lessons learned about this specific event other than chance is still part of the battlefield. That's the yeah. one thing that people need to realize. Chance is still there now conceptualizing because, you know, people have asked me and said, Hey, how could you stop this? Well, the only really, like we talked about before intelligence, the only way that you could ever really know, <clears throat> because you've got, you know, this blue force tracker, and I guess your listeners are probably familiar with BFT is, and you know, you're there in the Humvee and you're looking at the BFT screen and you can see where this Kiowa is and this force is, and this where this tick is. But we don't have the capability to say, well, there are these guys over here and they're near what we, what our RPG launchers, um, they, you could technically maybe one day in 20 years do that because you need a, a type of intelligence called sig- measurement and signature intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. It's how you our MC 12 liberties and RC 12 guardrails, uh, and a few other aircraft, the RQ 170 has this capability which is to soak up, um, you know, like a, 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 an example of mascent, mascent is uh, you see the muzzle flash uh, of a gun and that muzzle flash has a signature and the, that's, so that's a signature. And then the measurement is the time between the firing of it and that signature and the timing between it shows it's Dishka. Okay, so you know they've got a 12.7 millimeter anti-aircraft weapon system firing. That's mascent. Now there's all sorts of mass sensors. There's radioisotopic. That's what we used uh, in Iran to detect what they're doing. Um, you know, trying to enrich uranium. There's 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 visual. There's there's um, there's auditory. There's there's a, there's quite a few of them. And but the ability to be able to scan an entire area and to metallurgically identify and chemically identify what weapon systems exist. I mean, just on a square mile would take all the computing power that the NSA ever could dream of. Um, and that's the other thing about intelligence gathering is that we have these great capabilities, but you have to know where to look. You got to focus them on one area to determine it. You know, that's why they would request, you know, MC 12 Liberty or RC 12 guardrail. Hey, what's that house right there doing? You know, they loiter, they soak up all sorts of information passively a little bit of a, a little bit of active sensors, but mostly most mostly it's passive, and they can say, "Oh, it's an opium house, or, oh, it's an IED facility." That's you know, but you got to know where to look. Nobody knew to scan anything, and there, there's no RPG scanner anyway. There's nothing I know of that could determine if these RPGs were even sitting there um, to look in this one little village. You know, there's just no way to know that. So maybe one day we'll have some swarm drone technology with massively powerful uh, technical intelligence gathering capabilities and massively powerful computers to constantly analyze all this stuff. And then we can say, okay, well, we know a potential threat lies right here and don't fly there, but we just don't have that. And that's why chance is still part of a battlefield. And it always will be, yeah, even when you have a, te- a capability like that, because in, there's, then there's counterintelligence where you can, you can make make stuff up. They've been doing counterintelligence for you know te- counter technical intelligence forever. Uh, you know the fake tanks back in World War II and all that kind of stuff. So, so you're saying you know unless you uh, have the power of God that this is just gonna, yep. this is just part of the battle space. Yeah. yeah, and that's the thing, and 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 that's that's one of the reasons that 
you know, <clears throat> one of the, the problems with this disconnect, this schism between the American populace and, and the warfighter <clears throat> is that, you know, you say, thank you for your service, but it's sort of hollow. And you, you maybe say, well, why are you thanking me? What, what are you specifically thanking me about? The risks I'm taking, you know, it's like, you don't really know that there's, that it's a tremendous risk, that it's really, it's really effing dangerous uh, to do this stuff. I mean, just getting on a helicopter in a war zone, I mean, it's tremendously dangerous. So it's, there's, that risk is there, and it's, it's probably always going to be there. I mean, that's the nature of war. It's unknown. There's unknowns there, and they'll, they'll never be able to be unspun, that enigma uh, of, of potential unknowns. You know, yeah. like we, I, I don't know personally, but I can guarantee you we've got a lot of really powerful assets, intelligence gathering assets aimed at North Korea right now, but we still don't know. Right. So <laughs> it seems like we know actually I mean, very, very little going on over there. Well, who, well, again, not being privy to any of that stuff. Uh, and I have a lot of faith in the people who work the Intel side of things. <laughs> um, but who knows? Um, somebody knows something. Sure. Um, but well, you know, we're, we're, you, you and I aren't privy to that stuff. That's, pretty highly compartmented, I think, at the TS level at this yeah. point. Um, so. Shifting gears a little bit to um, Operation Red Wings, that's another thing that people are um, very emotional about, I find. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What What are your findings on Red Wings versus, you know, say the story that we've been told by the movies? <clears throat> well, when I wrote the book Victory Point, I based it off after action reports and um, – interviews with people <clears throat> with in, Intel people. And also, I mean, there was a video made and <clears throat> this video, there's two video made videos made and you can see there's seven people total, total seven. Now I said in my book, eight to 10, because there possibly could have been like another fire team, you know, three or four other guys off in another part. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, People, I didn't get a lot of it, but I got some serious hate mail, death threats and stuff. Like, how dare you say this? Because Marcus Luttrell was there, and he said there was 400 guys and all this and that. Well, as it turns out, um, it was seven. Um, and <laughs> it was the, you know, all this comes from, you know, subsequent intelligence reports. I, I wasn't, I, you know, I have a interesting relationship with certain units that I've worked with. And so I get access to information and with the caveat of don't explain how this we got this, and this was ten years ago. I didn't. I just said sig- signals intelligence. Um, well, since then it's come out this thing called LLVI. Maybe you've heard of it. Low level voice intercept. They put it on the RC12 guardrail. They put it on pods. They they and these pods were around Satalasar, and the low level voice intercept is like cell phones. It's a 0.6 watt transmitter, uh, and also radios, two-way radios and ICOMs, right. you, know, you, you know what an ICOM is, and, and sat phones. Walkie-talkies. And, so. Yeah, walkie-talkies, two-ways, push-to-talks, PTTs. And, I mean, all this stuff is recorded. And, like, you can track people by their phone. I mean, it's just all sorts of crazy capabilities, and that's what they were doing. And the number seven, and there's one other thing that <clears throat> I continue to work on Red Wings. I'm not going to get into too much detail. But I continue to work on that. I, it's hard to believe because I had been involved with the Red Wings before it was even Red Wings. It was March of 2005 that I met the battalion that actually was <laughs> took it from their sister battalion in, in Afghanistan. They just 
the battalion at the time just didn't have the intel hits to proceed with it. And they, it was called stars at that point. And so they took it and they renamed it red wings and they, you know, and then I showed up in Afghanistan a few months after that and ended up writing a book about it and articles. And it just keeps, it just, it, it, it just has a life of its own. And in subsequent years and pretty recently, there's been a couple other things that have come up that I can say with absolute certainty, it was seven guys. Cause I know that's what you're getting at. Cause that's what people always get upset about. Yeah. How dare you say these Navy SEALs were only up against seven guys. Well, they were, and there's, there's irrefutable stuff at this point to, you know, not just, you know, classified <coughs> after action reports and even the video made by those guys, there's other stuff out there that definitively answers that question. So, and I think people are realizing now that, yeah, you know, it's, you know, I, I helped write that Newsweek article that it was May of 2016. It was uh, May 16th, I think. And Pat Kinzer, who I was his, I was embedded in his platoon in Afghanistan and they, uh, he's got a great quote in there. He's like, that's total bullshit that there's that many guys. There's, there's not 20 or 30, you know, or 200 people in all the Congo Valley. That's what I was told also. Do you, do you, Sorry. Well, you were saying that's what we were told. I was just going to say, do you blame Marcus Luttrell for like what seems like an exaggeration or do you think it could be the result of PTSD or just the heat of the moment that, you, you know, you don't vividly remember every detail of, of a story you were a part of? Um, well, uh, boy, I, I don't want to use the term blame. Um, and I've been accused of going after Marcus Luttrell and I've never done that. All I've ever gone after is the truth. and there is there is there is stuff in command higher command that I think that I I would blame this on Um, there is a guy I'm not going to put his name out there but he was uh, in 06 and he, he three of those four guys had never been in combat before you know, Danny Dietz was the only one that had ever been in combat. And, and they were you know, also an SDV team sent on a special reconnaissance mission in the mountains. Yep. And, you know, you know a lot more about this than I do. This is your forte. But, uh, you know, it's it's those guys that never trained together. And, um, you know, I've got my own personal theories. And once we get a little bit more information, I'll be able to put it out there. And that's going to happen in the next few years but I'm going to keep those personal thoughts to myself right now. But, you know, it was just um, what has been published, including in my book and in um, some technical articles that I've written and one very important article that was written in the Marine Corps Gazette by the battalion commander, second battalion, third Marines. Um, They, it was just a, it was a, it was a command chain breakdown uh, and so many different levels. It was just, um, there's so much, I mean, we, we can talk for hours about this yeah. I mean, from the aviation aspect of it, from the initial planning of it, <coughs> from the ego side of it. Uh, but there's, there's really one particular guy that all this falls on the shoulders of, I won't say his name, but um, I'm sure there's some people out there who know. Yeah, I, I think I uh, know and, who you're talking about too, Ed. And I mean, yeah. this this person is involved in floating um, heroic narratives in more than one incident. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Takagar, Roberts Ridge. Yep. 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 
And so, so yep. they take the, they take naval failures and spin them into these like heroic yep. Hollywood scripts. Yep. And I'm not going to speak to anything. Well, I mean, it's a little bit too sacrilegious. I won't even go there, but it's, um, you know who I'm talking about. And, um, you know, let's just leave it at this. And there's going to be, there's going to be more on Red Wings. There's going to be more stuff on Red Wings. So I'm working one project right this second. Um, I'm, I'm, so, no, I'm happy to actually with that. the Ranger, with an Army Ranger. Oh, okay, yeah, so. the two seven five guys that were involved. Yeah, and, and I was going to yep. say your friend Leo Jenkins was one of them, and didn't he write a piece refuting uh, some of what went on? Jen- Jenkins was three seven five. He was in my battalion, and he was um, <coughs> one of the guys that was spun up after it happened, and they quickly rushed them into Afghanistan um, to help search for Luttrell. Yeah, because I remember him writing a yeah. piece for you know about him refuting some of the stuff in the Lone Survivor movie. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, the Rangers also came to the conclusion that there wasn't some massive firefight with hundreds of people fairly quickly. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I'm going to try to be as careful about this as possible, but there was no 556 brass found. And I, right. you know, that we've already we've already published that in um in the Newsweek article. You're talking um, what about else was the... published in, in the Newsweek article was that Latrell had all 11 magazines okay, with them, and yeah. they all were filled with, with rounds. So I read that article. So, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So, Ed, what do you think? But, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about the schism between the American military, you know, veteran or soldier and the U.S. public. Why do you think these stories, these these like grand narratives we create, we keep creating them over and over again, and we form this very emotional attachment to them? I mean, what do you make of all of this, um, you know, I guess civil military relationship that we have with these like G.I. Joe type movies and things? It's interesting because I had it too when I, I just, you sort of, it was just ignorance. I mean, it just comes down to ignorance. And I think people really, there's a, it's, I'm not a psychologist, but people do tend to want to be part of something that they feel is greater than themselves. Like yeah. you probably experienced this. Like everybody, sure. so many people I meet, they, they're saying, Oh, well, I have a friend and he knows somebody in the Navy SEALs. And so all of a sudden they're imbued with all this wisdom and knowledge about how the military <laughs> works. Like, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you about that spy satellite. Cause I got a friend who's a Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs don't know anything about communications <laughs> or ISR satellites. You know, maybe some do, but you know, but somehow, or you see this too, with these experts, these, these guys that go on these TV shows and like one day they'll be asking about like a, a nuclear warhead in a, in a, in a, in a submarine. And then the next day they'll be talking about like a Black Hawk helicopter, yeah. you know? And, and <clears throat> it's one of the things that when I go out and I, I, I call them one shot sources because they know about one thing and that's it. And I, and I can use them once, like, you know, with extortion one seven buddy buddy lee who was the comp- extortion company commander <laughs> like he's great and he helped tremendously with this book but i will never need to use him as a source again because he only knows about that he knows about a lot of things <clears throat> but he's an absolute expert in that and that's what you got to go for and a lot of times and it, it, what happens is the news media <clears throat> will just go for these these professional quote-unquote professional sources and so, yeah, you get, get like, you get like you get like the acronym CIA after your name 
and suddenly you're, oh, yeah. you know, you're an expert on yeah. everything and like RT news has you on to talk yeah. about all sorts of zany stuff. Yeah. It's more than just military yeah, exactly. too, though. I feel like a lot of these, like no one stays in their lane anymore if they're a contributor on Fox News or CNN. I've brought this up yeah. countless times, so <laughs> I apologize to the audience and I brought it up recently, but it's just an example that sticks out of my head. I remember watching one of these Hannity panels uh, and there were like oh, lawyers yeah. and there were you know, just commentators who were in their 20s. And, and then they had, you know, like Nick Irving on this panel. And Hannity is asking questions about ISIS and terrorism. And I noticed, like, it's the lawyers opening their mouths every time who probably have no expertise on the subject. And I'm watching nope. this, like, go to Nick Irving. He's actually an Army Ranger. He actually has been in combat. And it just, that's yeah. how the media is. Well, There's with these people who, who think that they're an expert on every subject that you throw at them. Well, I mean, with respect to Nick Irving, I mean, he's a friend of mine. Nick has no experience with ISIS either. No, but my point being, would I rather hear from Nick Irving or, sure. or A-Rod's attorney who was, you know... Yeah, yeah no, I understand, to. I understand. Um, it, well, what's interesting yeah. about that also is that um, we can watch somebody on the news. I can, <clears throat> I can watch someone talking about counterterrorism and be like, wow, that person's totally full of shit. Or Ed can be watching somebody talking about military aviation and be like, wow, that guy's full of shit. But think about all the other people who are on the news media talking about, you know, the uh, water poisoning in yeah. Flint or... Um, that we don't know anything about. Right. That we don't... Even, and so then you make sure you have like, what, how is it, you know... And so we just we have know? to, we just have I to mean, nod our head and be like, okay. <laughs> it's also like you watch yeah, Fox the, News and it's like, how is it that every female expert also looks like they could be a model? You know what I mean? Is this really yeah, yeah. the oh, number yeah. one source that they're going to, or is it that viewers find this woman attractive? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they look, they know how to sell advertising. I mean, it's, um, but I, I think that it's just, you know, and I'm not advocating for compulsory military service, but I mean, I think if everybody even did like six months of, some sort of military service in this country, then, you know, you get a lot, much more of a broad based education right. and, and understanding. And it's just, um, it, it's there, like you said, there is that schism there is, um, and it's, it's just, and, and it's mysterious too. Like people don't really know. And they're kind of, wow, what, what's going on? And you see these, you know, the, you know, there's these enemy, these elusive, crazy, weird yeah. enemies, like, lurking in the shadows, you know, Al Qaeda, Taliban, we don't really know anything about them. And, um, and then, you know, these guys are going over and they're getting dropped off in the middle of the night. And I mean, at least in the early OEF, those guys were just making it up as they went along, you know, um, there wasn't anything, I mean, they definitely had tactics and all that kind of stuff, but it was, it, it's just, it, it's very mysterious and it's alluring in that mystery. Um, and people, they just don't, they, I think they want to make something out of it that's more than it really is. You know, like, you've been on tons of combat operations, Jack, you know, and it's like, I mean, I remember the first time I got, I mean, I remember everything. I got in a firefight once in Afghanistan, and the platoon commander gave me his M16 and let me shoot the Taliban. And I, <laughs> I will not fog a war. There's no fog of war. I remember every fucking second part of my language of what happened with that. I mean, and I loved it, you know, and it was, it was wild, you know. But it's just kind of a, you know, I know what that experience is like now. Most people don't. You know, the first time you're going to firefight, you shoot back. 
And it's just, uh, it's just totally, it's an unknown. It's mysterious and it's alluring and people just kind of want to know about it. Oh, who are these Navy SEAL guys? And you know, this and that army ranger guys, what are you really doing? And what are they really, a lot of, I get a lot of this, like, Hey, my son wants to go into the military and they're going to give him these pills. And uh, I understand that these pills can have long-term effects. I'm like, yeah, those pills are probably to keep me from getting malaria or, you know, some other nasty pathogen. So they're, you know, they're fine to take, you know, you've probably heard that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I've seen all those like Facebook memes of like, you know, who do you trust on vaccines? Like millions of doctors, well, not millions of doctors, whatever, thousands of doctors or, you know, some yoga teacher who posts (laughs) memes on Facebook, you know? Well, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting, too, because there's this, like, mythos that we've built up about ourselves and, like, how badass we are. And that's why people can't believe that, you know, Navy SEALs got ambushed and killed by seven <laughs> dudes or yeah. that a helicopter yeah. got yep. shot down in a random, you know, a random yeah. chance. Uh, we, like, Thank we you very much for bringing that point up. Thank yeah. you. That's a great, very important point. And I don't know if it's so much the <clears throat> you guys, you know, meaning members of Special Operations Command, but it's people who are on the book writing side and the movie making side. Yeah. And, you know, everybody likes heroes. And, you know, I, a lot of people, you know, I, I work for myself and I kind of do what I want to do. And so I don't, I've never worked in an office and I've never done the nine to five day to day in grind in and grind out. And, you know, it's sort of that people, I think want to vicariously experience these heroics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, they get wrapped up in that. And there's, there's people who write books and who, make movies who will deliver that fantasy and then that fantasy propagates. And pretty soon what was once a fantasy is now considered, you know, like I've had people say to me, how, how dare you say that Navy SEALs, four Navy SEALs can be taken out by seven Taliban. And I'm like, Oh yeah, because when you're in the Navy SEALs, your body is no longer subject to the ballistic properties (laughs) of supersonic weapon systems and explosions. You know, you've got a special force field. You know, I mean, it's just nonsense. Well, for a long it's time, just, I've uh, I've selfishly said that I, I hope Hollywood keeps making these movies about SEALs because I don't want any movies made about Rangers and Special Forces and, and talking about the units uh, I was in. Just keep making these SEAL movies, have at it. But now we have this movie yeah. coming out where uh, Thor plays a Special Forces captain in Afghanistan, so we're going to have to suck it up through that, I guess. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't pay attention to the movie stuff. No, I've never seen any of these films. I've never seen the uh, Lone Survivor movie. I've never seen. I've never seen any of the people ask me about it all the time. What was that one about Benghazi? I didn't see that. Oh, thirteen hours. Yeah, Yeah, I haven't seen that. I don't. I don't watch. I I can't watch those movies. I did watch Lone Survivor, and it actually is. It's a good movie, and it's not as fictional. It's still very fictional. It's, it's, it's actually better than the book. I mean, the book is, is laughable. You know, I, I used to not come out and publicly say that, but I remember when it came out, Matt Bartles was the guy, um, who was the commander of camp blessing, which was very close to where all this happened. I mean, seven miles and Matt and his Marines and Pat Kinzer and his Marines who Pat was based there with Matt, those guys did all this counterinsurgency outreach into the guys in, in the Shurik Valley. And they were personal friends with Galab. And I, when this book, Lone Survivor, came out, I remember driving in my car. I was heading actually down to MCAS Yuma, Marine Corps Air Station Yuma, to do a project. It was like in May of 2007, and I was driving my Land Rover, and I had my BlackBerry Pearl on speakerphone, and I was 
passing Wesley on Interstate 5's town there. I used to drive tomato trucks through there, telling Matt, reading passages from Lone Survivor, and we were howling with laughter about how absurd it was. Like, we just couldn't even, it was unbelievable. And just thinking, we're just like, oh, how can they say this? This absolute nonsense. Have you, have you read the book? Uh, I've never read it cover to cover. No, I've read Pat. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's this one part in the book where, like, he, like, blames the liberal media for what happened that day. And I was like, dude, really? really? I mean, like, you're going to blame your country for the decisions you made in combat? Like, I've made bad decisions in combat. I'll I'll say that openly. Mm -hmm. And and I'm writing a book about about some of that stuff. And I've made poor decisions. And I am solely responsible for all of those decisions. Like, it is not America's fault. It's not even the Ranger Regiment's fault. It's my fault. That's it. To to be fair, he didn't write that book. I mean, he gave like three 45-minute interviews. And it was not written by Marcus Trell. Yeah. Funny, we were just saying that earlier. And so that's, you know... I mean, and the other thing, too, is Navy SEALs are Navy SEALs. They're not book authors. And it's, you know, knowledge amongst all these units is, you know, very compartmented. There's no reason that yep, that's true. A guy in 75th Ranger Regiment who is, I don't know anything about the 75th Ranger Regiment, but I, most of you guys are 11 Bravos and, you know, and, you know, your infantry, light infantry guys. And what, how, why should you know what a nine line is? That's for this combat control over here from 24 special tactics squad. Well, are you mean you a, not a nine line medevac? I mean, every soldier knows that. Well, I mean like a nine, a nine line for a, you know, for a close air support. Right. Oh no, but know, I, I, I get what you're saying though. You're right that these units you know are like I mean? very it's, compartmentalized. Um, yeah. you know, there's so many things that I've come to learn about what was going on <laughs> right under my nose. And I didn't find out until years later. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, um, so, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I walk a, you know, a line. I, I used to just be very, I never would say anything in public about it, you know, cause you, but my book came out to almost 10 years ago now it was in Oh nine. And you know, it's, it's, um, to this day, no one's ever refuted anything in it. And I've never, you know, I guess I'm bashing lone survivor now, but I don't even really care. It's, it's, it's just such a, you know, you, you, you write a book and it's to be, it's supposed to be nonfiction and it's just so filled with nonsense. Um, and it doesn't do anybody any good. You know, who it hurts in the long run is the Navy SEALs, you know, and Special Operations Command. I mean, you want to write a book about this stuff, be accurate, you know, be accurate. Take the time to talk to people who know. It's unfortunate. A lot of these books are written with one or two sources only. It's dangerous. You get to do that. Yeah. yeah so. And it, overall, it creates these misconceptions and poor perceptions of what's really going on out there. Yeah. But, and then also when I ask people when they ask, and they say, Hey, tell me about like, you know, accuracy and war reporting. And what do you need to have a military? You need two things. You need people and money. And, you know, Congress controls the money and, and the people who control, like who wants to go into the military, you know, a lot of that's media and stuff like that. And so different, you know, they used to bash the Marine Corps for being media whores. And maybe that was true a long time ago, but, you know, you see a lot of people, it's, uh, I don't know who's response, who's responsible for it. If there's any particular military unit responsible for it, but once people who pay taxes, which funds the military, and once people who have kids that when they turn 18, 17, 18, 19, and they want to do something with their lives, starts being like, wow, we're getting lied to. 
You know, what are these guys doing? You know, yeah. then all of a sudden, you know, the military is not such a popular thing anymore. And, you know, I'm saying hypothetically, but it's, it's, you know, there's something to be said for just telling the truth. The fact that seven dudes overwhelmed them in a 15 second ambush, uh, you know, because there's two guys standing out trying to get comms on a 9505 Alpha Iridium. There was one guy, Axelson, who was a little bit to the north of them. And there was one guy, Latrell, who was a little bit farther down the hill from them and they hit those two guys first and there it was over and you know, well I'll save the rest for later. But yeah. you know, that is, you know, there's nothing, there's no less bravery or anything else that comes from those that from that versus a 45 minute firefight. You know, technically it was about that long as there were shots being fired, but the actual meat of it was very short, but you know, there's nothing any less heroic about that than yeah, these guys no, like standing and fighting. Yeah, they fought. You know? They fought. I mean, they fought it, bravely, it, and uh, there's no need to yeah. church it up with all this other nonsense. Exactly. You know, and I know you. You know, I've been on only in a handful of firefights. I'm sure you've been in a ton of them, but I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's it's scary stuff. And it, and once people, are, once you, that's the thing. Like, you know, once you get lied to by people, I'm sure you have friends that have lied to you that they're still your friends. Sure. But, you're kind of like, yeah, well, all right. Uh, you just don't really trust them anymore, you know? Yeah, I'm, uh, and it's, it's, I'm probably going to write about it. I don't know. I know I will write about it in this book, but I, I was on one operation. I use the, I use this um, example to about, to tell people about, you know, the whole notion of like what is true. So I was on this one mission yeah. where we went out on an HVT strike outside Mosul. We pulled up, the guy, the HVT was was trying to escape. He was trying to um, run off the objective and, and disappear. And our ROE said, we can shoot guys who are, they're not surrendering. They're just trying to make their getaway to fight another day. So the entire task force yeah. opens up on this dude and shoots him, and, uh, including my gunner on my, on my striker. And I saw the whole thing with my own eyes. The second we get back to the base, I get back there and there's guys telling me, Oh, that guy, uh, his name was Zayad. Like he was shooting a Glock over his shoulder. Like he was running away from us while shooting a Glock pistol over his shoulder at us. And he's like, yeah, we saw the whole thing on ISR. And I'm like, dude, that didn't happen. And I think, you know, I think they were trying to cover their ass in case anyone asked questions, even though it was within the ROE. But I could see this narrative being this fictional narrative being created just like literally minutes after the, the killing happened. Yeah. You brought up a really interesting point. You said something that's really that I would never be able to just, you know, it's this truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. ISR feeds, predator feeds, FLIR, uh, Tad's Pinvis, any type of feed that comes down, you can, well, Tad's Pinvis on an Apache that doesn't, that's not trend. Maybe it is now in the new blocks, but I've had people tell me, yeah, I watched the Red Wings, uh, incident on is on a predator i people swear up and down and put that on the internet and the next thing you know people are citing that like oh yeah this guy said he saw it there was no there was no predator on station you know there there is people i've heard this so many times before about extortion one seven oh yeah i watched it happen i was in iraq at the time and uh we we were in the uh we're in the jsoc you know talk and you know we've got all these feeds everywhere and it's like okay so you saw what and you're saying you saw this and there, there was no there was no, there was no sensor on like on station. You know, I mean, there was in a different part of the Valley, but, and I've, I've heard that not a lot, but enough that it's people, I think just want to believe it and they make it up and they've seen enough 
predator feeds and they kind of know what it looks like. They got the cool symbology with the grids in the upper left and the X and all that kind of stuff. And they imagine that they saw it and it's just, it's, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm this infallible source and, but you know, I, I'm at a point now where, you know, cause I get this stuff, you know, handed to me and, you know, I know what it looks like and I study it very carefully and it's, even if you have it, it's there's stuff that you can miss. And then there's stuff that just doesn't even exist that people think, well, Joe over there, he was a, he's got a friend in the Navy who was going to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> he said he saw, he said he saw a predator imagery. He saw it on YouTube. Well, you this know, is of, uh, of this ambush. This, this is also like a little crash course for aspiring military journalists and like how difficult it is to really yep. ascertain what happened in a firefight. Like you're there's that, some, exactly. Yep. Yep. There's some Sorry, there's so some details you might just never be able to really find out, you know, and it's just incredibly <sighs> difficult. Yeah, and that's the thing with any of this stuff. It <clears throat> it really helps when you got gun tape. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, <laughs> um, it really helps when you got gun tape because gun tape doesn't lie. Uh, and I've even had people <clears throat> um, try to be as vague about this as possible, but I've had people say to me, "Well, even if you have the gun tape." you know, there's another sensor from another aircraft that could have been pointed at another part of the valley or another part of this. And there's always a way that people try to like worm their way out of it. So, so it could have happened. Right. Right. There could have been 400 Taliban fighters. They just weren't on the camera, you know? Okay. Right. Sure. I so had it's a, just, um, I had a it's, friend it's, it, or a, uh, an acquaintance really, who is a, uh, a seal officer. And he told me this great story about how, um, he got into a firefight in Afghanistan, him and his unit. And when they got back to their fob and they were doing the AAR, um, him and his teammate were, who were right next to each other in this firefight. They both like completely disagreed with what had happened on the ground. Uh, and they, they could yeah. not resolve between each other. Um, so, I mean, to their credit, they were, they were trying to be truthful, um, and, and tell things from their perspective rather than cook up a narrative. Um, but, but from an AAR perspective, it didn't make sense. Like this guy's saying this, this guy's saying that, and it didn't make sense. So he said that we had to wait like two or three days for the ISR footage to come back. And when it finally did come back and we looked at it, it showed that we were both wrong. Let's say you say two plus two equals four. And I say two plus two equals five. Does it mean that it's 4.5? Do we like agree in the middle? No, I'm wrong. You're right. You know, and that's the problem with people making compromises in these things. Like, well, this guy thinks that it might've been this. Oh, that guy thinks that it might've been this. No, here's what we got. Here's the preponderance of evidence points to there being blankety blank at this location at this time, this engagement occurred, this asset resolved PID, they engaged with this GBU, and there was collateral damage. Okay, here it is. Done. You know what I mean? It's like that's 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 and you you, you don't want to compromise with the truth. You know you can't. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, something it, happens. It's as old as time. I mean, hence the term war story, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think the other thing is um, it's why you really got to be be careful. People really have to be careful to corroborate and to get as many sources as possible yeah. and to be able to corroborate those sources. I, I was involved with someone and <clears throat> we had a book deal and um, thank God he backed out of it because it turns out that he, uh, he and the truth were um, 
from my perspective, uh, I have to say that uh, we're, had a, we're, we're not quite in, in phase with one another. Um, and uh, boy, dodged a bullet there. So, <laughs> and it was, he was just, it was going to be a single source book and I'll never do that again. Well, um, I, so I was just going to say, I mean, I give you credit for putting out both of these books we've been talking about, because I know you're opening yourself up to a ton of criticism, sure. especially not being a part of the community, you know, the, the way that you're, yeah. saying you're getting death threats and stuff. I fully believe it. So, I mean, the older book that we were discussing is victory point operation, red wings yeah. and whalers. Uh, the newer one that came out early or, or I should say late last year, since now 2018, uh, is the yeah. final mission of Extortion 17, Special Ops, Helicopter Support, SEAL Team 6, and the Deadliest Day of the U.S. War in Afghanistan. You also have a lot of other books, more nature-related. Yeah. Um, and if you check yeah. out Ed's website, you have some really awesome photography, some of it for sale and prints, um, if you're into yeah. any nature-related photography. So it's Derek.com, D-A-R-A-C-K.com. Ed yeah. Derek on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, yeah, anything else before yeah. we wrap this up? This has been a really great episode having you on, and a lot of a lot of Thanks. truth, a lot of hard truth that yeah. I think some people you know will not want to hear, but I think that it's it's important to have people like you writing these books. I you know I think I think people as as time has gone on, I think people are ready for it. You know, I really do, and and a little bit of self criticism. I I. I work in a lot of fields. I don't dabble in any of them. I'm very in depth with lots of them, but you know, I talk about, you know, I've written about atmospheric refraction, the green flash, you know, and I've been on television talking about it, you know, and I'm going to be on television in May talking about operation red wing. So there is a very fair, you know, a criticism of me. You know, I know that I spend a tremendous amount of time researching this and I'm basically just a collator of information. I'm not, an expert on red wings per se. I just am able to get people <clears throat> and data about it. That is expert. You know what I mean? And enough sources to be able to resolve with, with a very high degree of clarity and these other things too. So it's, um, it's just what you got to do. It's just a way, I think it's, it's an epistemological approach to, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, from a very fundamental level, you just really have to want the truth. So um, thank you very much for having me on. I can continue to talk. Uh, you know, and thanks for mentioning the book, The Extortion One Seven Story is amazing. And I hope everybody buys that book in America and reads it. Yeah. So. Thanks for coming on, Ed. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I hope we can have you on again to talk about this stuff. I mean, if you're continuing your work, especially on these subjects, oh, yep. um, we can definitely yep. have oh, you yeah. on again to discuss that. Yeah, I got a great, some great projects going right now. So, all right. Uh, awesome having Ed on a lot of information there. And I'm sure if you want to learn more about that, you could pick up both of those books. Um, you know what? I realized that I didn't, Oh, I actually was going to mention this before I even, uh, mention the next thing you were saying that you hope that there's no army ranger movies, but I mean, there is a Nick Irving movie coming out. I don't know if you realize that. I thought they were doing a TV show. Well, he talked about it on the last podcast. He was on with us. You may remember attached to that TV show was a guy by the name of, Harvey Weinstein. So that's not going to happen partially because of that. I don't know if that's the whole reason, but he did bring that up. So, you know, even better, it's now going to become a 
the feature. Oh, movie, wow. Feature okay. length movie. So. Oh, that's it's funny you say that because um, they uh, this TV show I just did on Tesla, I think they pushed it out because there's a movie coming out about Tesla. Mm-hmm. And like the movie is made, I think it was called Current Wars, and it was supposed to be out now, but it was a Harvey Weinstein production. Yeah. So now it's like on hiatus, like no one knows. It, it, like legally, they have to figure out what's going to happen. With that production company, and I don't think anyone knows. His name was attached to so much stuff. I mean, he was an extremely powerful guy in Hollywood. Yeah. So, yeah, not surprising. Uh, and then the other thing I was going to bring up, of course, I don't know if you saw our friend Mike Ritland got to ring the bell of the New York Stock Exchange yesterday for Warrior Dog Foundation, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, um, that is pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yep, I put the video up. If you go to our Instagram, uh, Sop Rep Radio, I retweeted or re-Instagrammed, whatever you want to say, uh, that stuff. So follow us on Instagram, at Sop Rep Radio, as we're wrapping things up. As a reminder, for all of those who are listening for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to Sop Rep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. Sofrep TV's premiere show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to Sofrep TV. That's at sofreptv.us and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership, only $4.99 a month. Check that out, SofRepTV.us. And, of course, if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SofRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the I, I got mine yesterday. Happy with it? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. There's actually a really cool uh, gun safe. In it. You know who I noticed got um, one of the crates was Liz Carmucci we had on recently because cool. I, I, I said send Liz a crate, you know, because she was great on the show and everything. And I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was actually the first um, person to fight Ronda Rousey. The first female UFC uh, fight okay. was Rousey versus Liz Carmucci. And Liz is also a former Marine combat veteran. So that's kind of the connection with the show and had her on with Jim West, of course. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, whenever we have like a mixed martial artist, there's no one better to have on than Jim. Um, so all of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've set in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company, to subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. It's been awesome having you back on here. Great interview that you lined up. Um, yeah, man, and, and I'll be seeing more of you every Tuesday and Thursday as we record these and put them up every Wednesday yep, and Friday. Thank God I'm back. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to have you <laughs> back, man, and, and I'm happy to see that re- the response to your show has been good. So every Tuesday people could check it out. Yeah, it'll be on every Tuesday. There's five episodes. Um, you know, I think they look really cool, but I mean, I'm happy I did it. But at the end of the day, I mean, TV's not really my thing. So yeah, I'm glad to be back to my normal work. Cool, man. So yeah, it's Tesla's Death Ray, a murder declassified. Check that out on Discovery. And we're out.
You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.